Good afternoon, this is Dr. Daniel Guerra on this Authentic Biochemistry podcast. We are actually going to do one final lecture in this portrait, portrait number four. So I'm just going to call it a postscript. I want to make sure we finalize that data that came from that work with the um, MRS uh, study. So remember, we're talking about magnetic resonance spectroscopic imaging. And remember what I was saying last time, right before we finished, similar to mild cognitive impairment and the Alzheimer's disease picture, the N-acetylaspartate to creatine ratio was lower and the myo-inositol to creatine ratio higher in non-symptomatic carriers of the MAPT. Now remember the MAPT, we're talking about a specific mutation in the tau protein. And that's in compared to controls. Now, and we can say in symptomatic MAPT carriers compared with non-symptomatic carriers. And remember where this is occurring at. You know, the, the, it's really important to remember where it is in the brain. This is happening in the posterior cingulate cortex. Remember their voxel utilization, where you do single voxel studies, they're able to pinpoint metabolic activity using this nuclear overhauser effect, which is an NR, N, NMR um, mediated process. And then putting that together for this magnetic resonance spectroscopic imaging. So it's it's really nice to be able to get that accurate. So, yeah, so one paper that they were looking at, this is sort of a review article, but it's also some of their own work, showed an increase, well, showed more of a decline in posterior cingulate cortex NAA, that's N-acetylaspartate, when you compare it to myo-inositol, remember that's one of the tabloids they were looking at, and an increase in that PCC, in that cingulate cortex, of myo-inositol compared to the control protein, uh, not, for, not for the control metabolite, creatine. And they found that particular node of activity two full years prior to full symptom onset in otherwise healthy individuals. Now, another group found that there was a reduced gamma-aminobutyric acid in the right inferior frontal gyrus, but not at all in the occipital lobe in patients with frontal temporal dementia. And they claim, this is how I finished last lecture, they claim that correlated with a behavioral measure of impulsivity and they also said that reduced N-acetylaspartate and glutamate was co-occurring in the right prefrontal cortex in FTD patients, frontal temporal dementia patients. Okay. Now I want to remind you about this NAA metabolite. Maybe reminding you isn't the isn't the nicest way to put it. I'm going to let you know that. N-acetyl-L-aspartate is synthesized by aspartate and acetyl-CoA via the reaction aspartate and acetyltransferase. Now, that occurs in neurons in the CNS, in humans. 
generate N-acetyl-L-aspartate, which then gets traffic to the oligodendrocytes within that same neighborhood region where the neurons are. Once N-acetyl-L-aspartate is, is uh, trans transported to the oligodendrocyte, the enzyme there that's important is aspartoacylase, that's ASPA. That reproduces um, L-aspartate and just acetate. Now, the acetate then is, uh, again, sterified to coenzyme A and the oligodendrocyte and acetyl-CoA from that carbon source, the N-acetyl-L-aspartate that came originally from the neuron will be used for fatty acid biosynthesis, and that will be the, uh, the fatty acid component of sphingomyelin biosynthesis in the oligodendrocyte. Remember, the oligodendrocyte is responsible for making sphingomyelin. Okay? Now, that's interesting, right? Now, in terms of carbon for the neuron to be able to synthesize N-acetyl-L-aspartate, uh, most of that is actually coming from glycolysis. So once glycolysis generates pyruvate, pyruvate enters the mitochondria, pre-dehydrogenase is going to make acetyl-CoA, an OAA. Um, that OAA can participate in the malate aspartate shuttle. And when that occurs, aspartate plus acetyl-CoA will increase in the mitochondrion while the shuttle's functioning. And, and when that occurs, the aspartate N-acetyltransferase will synthesize N-acetyl-L-aspartate. That NAA will then leave the mitochondrion, go to the neuronal cytosol, and then leave uh, via a monocarboxylic acid transporter the neuron completely and make it to the oligodendrocyte. So now you got the whole picture. Okay. So they also talked a little bit about choline in this paper. But they didn't find anything particularly dramatic. Now, they claim that choline is a good marker for cell membrane degradation, free choline. And they're saying it's very easy to measure in this MRS technique. And they say that its levels often increase in dementia patients, free choline. But they're not sure that they see that as a common data point in their own work. So they didn't see increases or decreases in choline in any of their studies looking at AD and looking at MCI patients. So they're arguing that it's possible maybe people run medications like acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, and that may have something to do with the level of choline uh, not increasing or decreasing. Um, in the time frame of these experiments. But I want you to keep that in mind. The choline is considered a, a, a biomarker for the degradation of sphingomyelin, the sphingomyelin sheath. Uh, and when that occurs, of course, you're having also sphingomyelinase. Remember, sphingomyelinase is going to generate phosphonocholine plus ceramide. And that phosphonylcholine may not be um, readily available for this MRS um, field study. I'm not sure whether or not the nuclear overhauser effect is going to pick up that tri, um, not tri, but by this phosphorylated choline residue. OK, 
okay? Because remember, choline is trimethylated ethanolamine. And so you have ethanolamine, so that's where you're going to get the source of the, the proton relaxation. But with that phosphate, I'm not sure what, what that, if that would change uh, its, um, its signal to noise ratio in these studies. So maybe that's why they didn't. They didn't bring that up, but I thought I would bring it up. Now, they also talked about glutathione. Remember that? Now, you know that glutathione is normally used in the glutathione reductase system. So GSSG, that's oxidized glutathione. It's basically essentially dimer, disulfide bond. Um, that, be that becomes reduced to GSH via the production uh, or via, yeah, via the utilization of NADPH, right? So glutathione reduced then will be responsible for taking reactive oxygen species and reducing them. And in so doing, glutathione will be reoxidized at GSSG and NADPH will do its role there uh, to resynthesize GSH. You understand that? Now, the biosynthesis of glutathione, we have talked about. It's in the extracellular space. And glutathione will react, uh, uh, will be broken down, excuse me, via the GGT enzyme to produce glutamate and then the diamino acid glycine cysteine. That dipeptidase enzyme will then generate glycine and cysteine in the extracellular space, along with glutamate. Now, that will go through the plant, uh, the cell membrane into the cytoplasm. So remember that the cell membrane will allow for the translocation of those two amino acids via amino acid transporters. So now within the cytoplasm, you have cysteine, glycine, and glutamate. And they will reform via the gamma glutamyl cysteine ligase, <coughs> the gamma glutamyl cysteine, and ultimately the glutathione synthase regenerating GSH. Okay, once you once you've added in glycine, so that's the pathway for glutathione biosynthesis in uh, the neuronal system. Okay, so glutamate is really important for that entire uh, production of that um, uh, glutathione, which will remove reactive oxygen. So if glutamate metabolism is corrupted in the central nervous system, in FTD or in AD or in PD or PD with Lewy bodies, you can see how glutamate levels can be altered so that insufficient glutathione could be generated. That's the whole point. And then you would have an increase in reactive oxygen that could not be Reduce. Now, also, I want you to think about the whole GABAergic system. So, glutamate and GABA, when you're thinking about glia and neurons, have a three way interaction. So, you have the astrocyte, you have the microglia, and you have the GABAergic neuron presynaptic and the GABAergic neuron postsynaptic, okay? So GABA will bind to its presynaptic receptor as well as its 
post or extra synaptic receptor. Glutamate, of course, is synthesized from glutamine by a phosphate-activated glutaminase. And that gets packaged into synaptic vesicles by the vesicular glutamate transporter called BGLUT1-2. Now, after release into the synaptic cleft, this glutamate will bind to neuronal postsynaptic receptors for, for, for that amino acid. And that's known as the ionotropic N-methyl D-aspartate alpha-amino-3-hydroxy-5-methyl-4-isozazopropionate kinate. Okay, so that's the AMPA kinate and the metabotropic MGLU-R1. Now that will all go to the presynaptic receptors, and those are ionotropic, NMDA, AMPA, KA, and the metabotropic again. Also to the extrasynaptic receptors, which are the MGLU-R2, 3, 4, and 8. You also have microglial receptors, same ones, NMDA, AMPA, KA, and MGLU-R2-8. So the glutamate is also released by microglia via gap junction hemichannels. Uh, one such hemichannel is known as the CX32. You'll also have that occur by astrocytes via directly the NMDA and the purinergic P2X7 receptors. So you have plasma membrane glutamate transporters, you have anion transporters, and you have gap junctions. Okay? So all of this is going to be coordinated for resynthesis of glutamine. That's the glutamine synthase pathway. So what happens then is glutamine will be transferred from the astrocyte back to the neuron. GABA is synthesized from glutamate by glutamate decarboxylase as a GAD enzyme, and then it's packed into synaptic vesicles by the vesicular GABA transporter that's called VGAT. Now, after release into the synaptic cleft, GABA will bind to the neuronal ionotropic GABA-A pre-post and extrasynaptic GABA-C pre- and postsynaptic and metabotropic GABA-B, but also the microglial GABA-B. Now, both Presynaptic neural terminals and surrounding glial cells are therefore in total responsible for the uptake of GABA from the extracellular space. And in glia, GABA is converted, as I just said, to glutamine and then is transferred back to the neurons and there is converted to glutamate. And then finally, glutamate to GABA and the whole system starts over. So you understand the complexity of this system. Multiple ways for GABA to function at the synapse and for it to be involved in the metabolism of glutamine, glutamate, 
and then its own synthesis, and then translocation. And that involves astrocytes, microglia, and then the two neurons that are playing a specific role, presynaptic and postsynaptic, and those have to be GABAergic. Okay? Now, told you all of that because there is interest in looking at GABA and glutamate. Remember that, okay? I told you that last time. So in the metabolites like GABA, GSH, and glutamate are difficult to measure using this MRS because GABA is present in low concentrations relative to the other metabolites. It's not translocated to any significant degree. So it's going to generate what's known as a multiplet signal. And that results in what are known as three low-intensity peaks. And they said there was a spectral overlap of that of some of that, at least one of those peaks, with NAA, creatine, and glutamine. And I just mentioned to you, all of those are far more abundant than the uh, CNS, humans. Now, even though glutamate is abundant, it overlaps with glutamine, which obviously the case, and it will make it difficult to resolve. While GSH is present in low concentration, it overlaps by metabolites, including creatine and glutamine and NAA and GABA. So they, they are able to use what's known as spectral editing. And so they have software for this, and that uses apparently a what's known as a J-coupled metabolic scan, and it uses successfully measure them. So they do have a technique to do this. So what's going on here? Well, glutamate and GABA are, of course, excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters, respectively. It's interesting that they are uh, on opposite sides of the pole in terms of whether or not they're excitatory or inhibitory, and they only differ by one reaction, as, I, as you know. So glutathione, of course, is a marker of oxidative stress. Okay. So when, you, when they were studying this use of this MRS technique, and they were able to clear via that editing technique to separate out all the signals from glutamate and GABA, et cetera. They found lower glutamate, lower GABA, and lower GSH, it's glutathione-reduced form, in both Alzheimer's disease and in the mild cognitively impaired. They found lower GABA and glutamate in the frontal regions in FTD, and they said that that correlated with measures of executive dysfunction. They found lower occipital and acetyl aspartate and glutamate in Lewy body disease compared to AD and compared to controls. Now, they have atrophic brain changes going on. Remember that atrophy. And, of course, it's well-established, and that complicates performing that voxel tissue correction, which is what they were uh, saying was really the main reason why this new technique is so useful. 
Okay? Because reduction in brain size, which is common in disease, these all these neurodegenerative diseases, the brain size decreases, um, is going to then complicate whether or not they can do these measurements. So they feel like the best they're really doing is measuring relative metabolite concentrations and not absolute concentrations. Okay. And that means, and that that the reason they were calculating ratios was to kind of like um, recover from that lack of absolute values. That's what they were trying to do. And remember, using creatine as the um, non-changing denominator. Okay, but even that they admit is a problem because creatine. In relationship to total creatine, because you remember, you remember, you also have fossil creatine, um, is not as stable as they had thought in the CNS, because they've been measuring this, obviously. So it means that a lot of this data is still um, complicated by the fact that the technique within itself um, distributes some error. Okay. They also uh, mentioned that this cingulate cortex was commonly chosen for voxel placement in the AD and MCI studies, but the other dementias included other additional voxels, including the frontal cortex, obviously, in the FTD, and the occipital cortex in Lewy body disease and in Parkinson's disease degeneration and dementia, okay? A DLB, PDD, those are the two acronyms there. So the studies included voxels beyond all of those measurements. So they looked at NAA to creatine in, and they determined that it was lower in both AD and FTD, but it's lower in a frontal voxel more so than in that cingulate cortex in the FTD while just exactly the opposite was seen in Alzheimer's disease. And they found lower N-acetylaspartate glutamate more pronounced in the occipital lobe in the Lewy body disease compared to Frank Alzheimer's disease. So they basically they're finding different metabolite distributions. And they think they're finding uh, because they're finding differences in these metabolite distributions based on the MSR data, that these are distributions of pathologies. Okay, because if their their belief is that alterations in these really important neurotransmitters and for GSH in particular um, for removing reactive oxygen and for NAA being involved in myelin biosynthesis, particularly sphingomyelin biosynthesis. Um, they feel like they're, they've got a good handle on which metabolites are significant. And I think that that's not a bad um, um, supposition, okay? It's still a premise, understand, it's still a premise, because um, there's no way to know at this point whether or not these data, uh, the data that they're generating is indeed highly correlated with disease. But they're doing what your biochemistry professor is asking uh, them to do. Start measuring some of these metabolites beyond looking at tau or A-beta, right, or synuclein. 
Now, now, or presenilin. Now, why is that more important? Because when research has been performed in pharmacology to target the tau aggregation mode or to eliminate the beta secretase activity or to, you know, to try to all uh, beta secretase activity relative to the A-beta protein cleavage and the tau protein phosphorylation or inhibitors for all these intermediate, presumably pathobiochemical events in all these different degenerations of dimensions. They nevertheless have drugs online that are being used for patients and the results are relatively um, unimpressive. So what, they, what they're going back to is what we've been arguing for them to do for a long time, go back and look at real metabolism. Uh, prior to these proteinopathies. And something like acetoaspartate uh, is a good start. And they did find those differences. Now, interesting, I told you they found this myoinositol distinction. So where they see NAA lower in the neurodegenerative diseases like AD and in my, even in mild car, um, cognitive impairment. Uh, interestingly, they saw higher levels of that cyclitol, myoinositol. So as it turns out, myoinositol has been considered possibly associated with neurodegeneration. So I found a paper published again this year, Nutrients, in 2023 in May, you know, several months ago now. And they say that myoinositol could be significant in neurodegeneration. Okay. Now, there are multiple forms of these sugars that are found naturally, many of them in plants. And you also know in all cells, in particular what we're discussing here in the mammal and in humans in particular, is that we find inositol associated with lipids. Remember the phosphatidylinositol um, uh, lipids, right? So remember, we have PIP3, PIP4, PIP45, right? And those numbers at the end are where the phosphates are localized onto the inositol, cyclitol ring structure, right? So you can have a 1, 2, 3, 4 cyclohexene tetrol. You can have myoinositol where all six of those carbon atoms on that ring structure are hydro have an hydroxyl group. And there's another compound found in plants where you have all six hydroxyl groups um, making that cyclotol, but you have one of them, one of them now methylated. That that is an oxymethyl group on where what would be found one of the OH groups. Okay, and that's called pinetol. So cyclitols are monocyclic saturated hydrocarbons, and they have to contain at least three hydroxyl groups. So obviously myoinositol fits that because it has six. Um, all right. And they're typically considered in plants as osmoprotectants, and they may work that way also in RCNS when they're free. But what they found, let me check my time because I don't want to go over here because this is the, yeah, I got two minutes. Okay. But when they're found uh, in some of the research that I looked at, 
It's possible because inositols and inositol phosphates control calcium release from the ER, and that calcium release is associated with some components of neurodegeneration, that high levels of that myo-inositol, which that MRI study picked up on, could actually be linked to neurodegeneration. And that's what they're trying to say there, okay? So, you know, and you do find high levels of myo-inositol in the cerebrospinal fluid of patients suffering from Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, as well as finding elevated levels of MI in glioblastomas. So the argument in this paper published in 2023 is maybe these cyclitols are also playing a role in the pathology. I wanted to bring that up because the NMR study was looking at that metabolite, right? And so uh, they did not mention the potential um, pathobiochemical effect of myo-inositol, but obviously they were looking at it. They found higher levels in the neurodegenerative diseases. Okay, I'm going to stop there. That's the end of our uh, biomedical portrait number four, where we were doing mostly neurodegeneration. We were always trying to link back to HLA because of all the immune cell responses. And we, you know, even at the very end, we're talking about microglia, right? Playing a role in metabolism <laughs> of the GABA glutamate glutamine cycles, right? So you understand how these glia, uh, including things like astrocytes and microglia, play a very significant role in the central nervous system beyond simply like for microglia working as resident macrophages. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Bye for now.